Hello, and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, where we set up the news stories in the next seven days. I'm Justin Quirk. Joining me this morning to work out the week ahead is Bunker and Oh God, What Now regular, Ros Taylor. Good morning, Ros. Hello, Justin. Starting uh, with the Tory conference. Um, the Tory party conference kicked off yesterday in Birmingham. We've already had the likes of Penny Morden and Ben Wallace speaking, while today's big tickets are Quasi Quateng, Kemi Badnock and Jacob Rees-Mogg. And just as we started recording, the Chancellor took to Twitter with a fairly significant announcement. Fill us in, Ross. Well, the abolition of the 45p rate, which was the centrepiece of last week's mini-budget, has been abandoned. So it is no longer happening. Now, this was probably the most unpopular part of a generally unpopular package. But the scale of this U-turn should really not be underestimated. This is a massive deal. It is embarrassing for everyone concerned. And it raises doubts about Liz Truss's whole raison d'etre of pushing through unpopular policies in order to achieve the economic nirvana that she had promised. And now, within 10 days of this policy being announced, she has been forced to backtrack on it because so many of her backbenchers, and indeed quite formerly big beasts like Grant Shapps, the former transport secretary, basically said they could not and would not support it in Parliament. And what's more, of course, they didn't even have the workings to show how it was going to be achieved because we don't have the Office of Budget Responsibilities verdict on how all these tax cuts were going to be provided for and costed and paid for. So this is a massive blow to trust. And it was perhaps the only thing she could do, given the scale of the opposition she was facing, but it sees her significantly weakened. As you say, I mean, this is an absolutely enormous climb down. Nick Erdley on the BBC just described it as a colossal government U-turn. As late as sort of yesterday morning, Liz Truss was insisting that this whole thing would go ahead. Um, What do you think was the crucial factor that changed? Basically, Michael Gove, who was on the same programme with Laura Kunzberg yesterday and on Sunday, made it clear that he wasn't supporting it. Then Grant Shapps and other people came out and the scale of the opposition became clear. And once you have too many people saying they can't do it, it becomes impossible. Now, there was some speculation yesterday that she was already preparing to blame Kwasi Kwarteng for the whole idea when she was asked by Laura Kunzberg whether she had cleared it with her cabinet, she said, hmm, uh, hmm, uh, no, I didn't. Uh, but it was Quasi's idea. And that uh, was described by Nadine Doris as, as um, throwing him under a bus. Now, I don't think she's quite done that, but there is no doubt that nobody wants now to take responsibility for this 45p idea. Even there are suggestions coming from the Quartain camp himself that it was forced upon him. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a hideous mess. As I say, you know, success has many parents and failure is an orphan. But, I mean, it's just a fact of politics that even if U-turns are the correct thing to do economically and socially, politicians seldom get rewarded for them. What does this do to the government overall, do you think? I think it's, while it was the only thing that they could do, given the opposition, it is important to say that it will not have a material effect on people's standard of living this winter. Now, we did not know how this 45p cut was going to be, how this 45p abolition was going to be paid for, but it, it abandoning it is 
almost symbolic in terms of the scale of the challenges facing this country. They are so great and there are so many things pressing in that it will only provide a very temporary respite, I think, for Truss and Kwarteng. I don't think it will help them. It will give the impression that they cannot stick to their plans, which was the most important thing that was animating Truss, and it will not help with the cost of living crisis. Is this necessarily fatal for the Chancellor, do you think? I mean, he was, just as we went to air, he was on BBC Breakfast saying that he'd not considered his position at all, despite this absolute shambles. But this seems like something which will, you know, he's essentially that this is his political epitaph, isn't it? No, I don't think so. I mean, and not until trust goes anyway. I think they rise and fall together. I don't think there's a, there's a chance that she could persuade anybody else to be her Chancellor at the moment, apart from possibly Jacob Rees-Mogg. Well, things can always get uh, get worse. I mean, trust, trust will be closing the conference on Wednesday with the last speech of the day. What do we think she's going to say? I mean, what can she say? Well, I doubt that we have ever gone into a Tory party conference with lower expectations for a leader's speech. And I speak as someone who, who saw Ian Duncan Smith deliver his peroration some time ago. I remembered Hills. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> The quiet man is turning up the volume. Yeah, that was very memorable. Um, no, I mean, the expectations are so low because we know what a dreadful public speaker she is. She is unlikely to, frankly, to, to, to be able to move the hall in the way that they want to be moved and that they were used to being moved during the Johnson era. And she will not now be able to use the line that I strongly suspect she wanted to use, the lady's not for turning because she has just turned. That, of course, was an echo of Thatcher's conference speech in 1980, when she said that there wouldn't be another winter of discontent, there would be a winter of common sense, which would be a very mistrust line, but I don't think she will try to get away with. There will be no new big policy announcements. I think if she just sticks to a prepared script and doesn't try to do anything you know, rem- that, that, that would runs the risk of falling flat, she will probably get through it. But they will come away not as Conservatives like to come away from a conference and as Labour came away from their conference last week, energised, feeling good, feeling that their leader is taking them somewhere, feeling positive, they will feel flat, disappointed, terrified about their futures. And just stepping back to take a slightly longer view, what do you think we're going to see unfolding over the next few weeks? Matthew Paris was writing in the Times on Saturday, suggesting that the only option for the Conservatives was to unseat Truss as fast as possible in, in state Sunak. Well, as you said, Gove and Grant Shapps both came out over the weekend, you know, suggesting they would vote against whatever was put in front of them and looking like they were loving every minute of it. Well, I think trust is going to be steadily weakened. This is the first major blow to her authority and others will quickly follow. There will be pressure from her side and from the Institute of Economic Affairs, which is increasingly driving government policy for more tax cuts. As we know, that is not what the country wants. People are not crying out for massive cuts to the NHS. They are not crying out for massive cuts to benefits. And we will be waiting to see whether the economy receives the turbocharge that Truss has promised it will get, whether the housing market somehow picks up despite, in some remarkable way, thanks to the stamp duty cut, despite the rising interest rates that are rapidly 
putting a dampener on it. We know that the pensions are triple locked and she, well, she confirmed that yesterday, although Truss also confirmed that the 45p rate was staying, so who knows. But benefits, of course, are not. They could well be held down and not rise in line with inflation. That would be a massive blow to people's incomes. You will also see more and more industrial strife we have strike of 999 operators, if you can believe it, on Thursday, BT Openreach workers, University College Union college staff, more train strikes. A London bus driver strike was cancelled this week that was due to start tomorrow, but they got a pay settlement of 11%. Now, I'm not saying they shouldn't have got it, but that is generous. And it sets a precedent which others, including, I suspect, doctors, teachers, nurses will want to see replicated for them. And it means that we are likely to see more and more strikes being declared. We will also get another interest rate on the rise on the 3rd of November, probably, if not before. Another interesting thing to watch that's coming down the line is that meteorologists are forecasting a very cold winter. And I don't need to tell you that that is bad news. That is bad news in terms of the energy crisis. It's also going to be quite a dry winter, apparently, which and a not a windy one, which is not good for our attempts to replace fossil fuels with renewables. It's also very bad in terms of the impact that COVID and flu could have, because that will make it harder for people to keep warm and fend off infections. You mentioned there the rising in energy bills. Um, over the past week, customers have started to receive the discounts and sort of top-up payments on energy bills from some providers. Is there anything else coming down the pipe by way of relief at the moment? Because the headlines of news around the tax cuts lost a lot of the detail around other measures that were announced last week? There's not a lot that's going to make a substantial difference. And I think a lot of people, especially those on benefits, will be scared at the thought that their benefits are not going to rise in in line with inflation. That, of course, will cancel out any small handouts. It's very much the case as well that people... It's it's been somewhat under-discussed, but as inflation does put wages up, more people are going to be pushed into higher tax brackets. And that means that they will end up paying more tax, (laughs) despite this allegedly being a tax-cutting budget, though we know that it it wasn't for anybody who was earning less than £150,000. So there isn't really a great deal coming, coming down the pipe to help people. The British government doubled down again over the weekend and said they uh, won't be publishing the Office of Budget Responsibilities assessment of its plans until November the 23rd. I mean, this seems like an age away. Why are they holding this information back for so long? Well, they weren't holding it back. I mean, the quasi Quateng basically said that they shouldn't try and try and do it. They, he said there was uh, they were putting out the policies very quickly and they shouldn't try to make an assessment. And that, of course, was to avoid the kind of scrutiny that would have showed the real effects of and and just how much how much debt and uh, the uncosted nature of these proposals. Of course, one of the problems with that was that you couldn't ask LPs to vote on the package without knowing how it would be paid for. And that is one of the strong arguments that backbenchers used when they were attacking the 45p rate and said, we can't support this. We don't know how it's going to be paid for. So I think 
given that the central plank of the package has just been abandoned, maybe it's just as well they didn't. <laughs> but I think Quarte will do everything he can to avoid scrutiny for as, as long as possible. One poll after another have been absolutely brutal for the government over the past few days. Um, several have been clocking leads up to 32 points for Labour. The economy, more than any issue, really does seem to be cutting through, even with people that the news doesn't normally reach. How long can a government withstand this? Oh, that's the uh, billion dollar question, <laughs> the billion pound question. It can withstand it as long as it keeps its own party largely on side. And of course, last night's U-turn over 45p was a realisation that they had to do a lot more to keep their own people on side because we would have seen, we would have seen backbenchers losing the whip over their refusal to fight for the plans. We would have seen Tory support gradually draining away. We would have seen a realisation among MPs that they just didn't want to be associated with this government. And I think that will all now happen, but it will happen a little bit more slowly. A few days ago, I thought that, as Matthew Paris suggested, really the only way out for this government was a national unity government or Sunak basically taking over. I think now that we will see a gradual draining away of authority, more and more strife, protest. This is going to be a government that is absolutely on its knees and exhausted by the time it leaves power. It has nothing left to give. It seems to me trust cannot postpone a general election beyond next year, and I hope obviously sooner. But this is a doomed government, and last night's move was merely postponing the inevitable. There was a particularly grim end to last week in Europe as Russia formalised its annexation of four regions of Ukraine. This was widely expected after the rigged referendums of the week before. What's been the global response to this, Ros? Well, there was a UN Security Council draft resolution that condemned these annexations. Russia inevitably vetoed it. More worryingly, China and India chose to abstain rather than actually vote against that resolution, which is disappointing and shows that there is no way that you can say the whole international community is in board against, against Russia's war in Ukraine. Clearly, China and India want to keep Russia on side. The key news of the weekend was Ukraine surrounding and retaking the town of Lyman in the Donbass region. This area is particularly significant for the progress of the war. Why is that? It is inside the line of annexation which Russia established, right. and it has already been very quickly undermined. Lyman is also a key road crossing over an important river. So strategically, it's very important for Ukraine. Um, Ukraine's obviously going to dominate the agenda on Thursday at the first meeting of the European political community. What is this and how does it differ from the regular EU get-togethers? So this is very much not a formal institution in the mode of the parliament, the community, all the other in European institutions that we're familiar with. It is, as Macron, Emmanuel Macron envisages it, a club. And Liz Truss's line has always been that this could end up being a talking shop. For Macron, this, this effort is partly to try and deal with the Turkey problem, uh, an increasingly illiberal Turkey, which was 
on track to join the EU, now frankly no longer is for a very, very long time, if at all, and also to try and keep Western Balkans nations who want to join the EU but have had their accession process slowed down to keep those people on board, keep those countries on board and make them feel that they are part of the European project. So the question is, what is in this for Britain? And why has Liz Truss decided to take part in it? And the answer to that, I think, is is um, more interesting and positive than might appear. I think that we do seem to be rowing back from deliberate conflicts with Europe. I think Truss was spooked when she made that uncalled for and foolish comment about Macron in August when she said that she didn't know whether he was a friend or a foe. And as a consequence, a deal that Macron had been about to offer for fixing migrant crossings or at least addressing them was pulled from the table. What we have seen now, I think, with trust is a slightly more pragmatic turn on the international stage and less Europe baiting. We've seen Pretty Patel go, which obviously helps a little bit with that. But my sense is that she's thrown so much economic red meat to her backbenchers that she thinks she perhaps no longer has to be quite so hard line and intransigent on Europe. We also saw a self-styled Brexit hard man, Steve Baker, giving a surprisingly emollient statement at the conference yesterday where he said in relation to Ireland that they thought they hadn't behaved in the way that they should with regard to Ireland or Europe and, you know, bridges needed to be rebuilt. With that and things like trust attending this, is this actual constructive grown-up behaviour we're seeing? Is this a sort of possible sign of what a closer relationship with Europe might look like? Yes, I mean, I, I, I hope so. I hope so. And that Steve Baker comment was, I think, very telling. Mm. It does it does show that we're perhaps trying not to see Europe as the default enemy, as Johnson was always was always trying to do. And of course, that, that's a good thing. And it's a good thing in terms of the, the war in Ukraine. And it means that we may be, be able to achieve more. And that that's regardless of the tenor of the rest of Truss's government, if we can at least talk intelligently and sympathetically to European countries, that will be a step forward. Overnight, we got the first results in from Brazil's general election, with Jair Bolsonaro taking 43% and his rival Lula on 48%. Neither candidate reached the 50% threshold, and a runoff will take place in four weeks' time. The vote took place against the backdrop of economic crisis and high inflation in the country between the far-right incumbent and the veteran left-winger. Ros, who will be more pleasantly surprised by that result this morning? I think, unfortunately, Bolsonaro. He was not expected to do quite quite so well, and it's it's unlikely, I think, that he will win the final, uh, the second round. I think Lula will take it in the end, but nonetheless, it show it was not the first round victory that Lula was hoping for, and it will disappoint people on the left and in the centre in Brazil, because frankly, Bolsonaro's rule has been a disaster in a number of 
a number of ways. And to not get that definitive rejection is disappointing. We should say due to the staggering size of Brazil, even that 5% margin meant that Lula was actually 6 million votes ahead. I mean, Lula is far from a sort of untainted or uncontroversial figure. What's the main sort of stories that have dogged him? Well, he's been on, in jail, of course, on corruption charges, which have now been quashed. He has a fascinating story. He started from almost nothing. He grew up in absolute poverty in Brazil. And by the time he left power, he was incredibly popular. He had used uh, commodities windfall to help the poor. He was seen in or regarded in Brazil as a saviour of the poor. And then his reputation basically got, got trashed after he left office. Now, there is a lot of corruption in South American politics. Doesn't need to be said. There's also corruption in European politics, but there's an awful lot of corruption in South American politics. Lula is far from perfect, but as far as the international community is concerned, and as far as the Amazon rainforest is concerned, he is at one hell of a lot better than Bolsonaro. I mean, as you say, the results of this are going to resonate far beyond Brazil and South America. Why is that? Well, the biggest reason is that the destruction of the Amazon rainforest has continued at pace under Bolsonaro. And that, of course, has massive implications as a carbon sink to try and stave off global heating. And the burning of the rainforest in itself, of course, contributes a huge amount to to, uh, that problem as well. So that, I think, is the main significance, but also that, you know, Brazil, Brazil is, is a major player. As you say, it's a, it's a very, very big country. It's a major player on the world stage. Under Bolsonaro, it has become a, you know, a renegade. It is, it is really because of his support for Trump and Trump's support for him, he has become a far-right pariah in the international community. And it will be desperately important for not just the environment, but for the international community at large, that Brazil rejoins, if you like, the world community in trying to fight climate change. Fingers crossed for that. And finally, this weekend saw Tesla unveil its much-hyped robot prototype, Optimus. The metallic humanoid lumbered on stage and waved at the assembled audience. A video of the robot carrying a box, watering plants and moving metal bars was also shown. Roz, will you be recruiting one of these for the Taylor household when they come onto the general market? <laughs> I, I will not. I, I shudder at these things. I, I find them actively creepy. There's... there's uh... Often they seem to be sort of half half uh, humanoid and you just have a pair of running legs or, or even worse, uh, because it's, of course it's easier to run on four legs than, than two for these robots, something that looks like a, a half dog. And I remember those those calling out orders during Chinese lockdowns for people to stay at home and it was, it was absolutely terrifying. I mean, Elon Musk says that for the uh, in the short term, these are for use in factories, basically. You know, screwing on bits of bits of car, and uh, I'm sure they will be. But eventually, being Elon Musk, he he says that they will do a lot more. That they will look after elderly people. That uh, you know, we can have sex with them. And the vision of a world in which we have to rely on robots to look after elderly people because we won't and don't don't want to can't 
afford to do it ourselves and that we have to um, uh, use these things uh, for sex as well for, for pretty much the same reasons is rather a depressing one. And as ever with Elon Musk, he thinks he's having enormous uh, inspirational visions of the future, which I find straightforwardly terrifying. Well, as long as they can't make podcasts, then uh, I'm, all, I'm all for it. So um, other stories we'll be keeping an eye on in the days ahead include strikes across the London Overground Network, the aftermath of Hurricane Ian sparking protests in Cuba and political fallout in Florida, where Joe Biden will visit on Wednesday. There's an ongoing Ebola outbreak in Uganda, which is being monitored closely by health officials and continuing demonstrations for women's rights in Iran. The King will be in Dunfermline in Edinburgh today, undertaking his first public engagement since the Queen's funeral. The Nobel Prize for Medicine is also announced later, and the Lionesses return to Wembley Stadium Friday evening to play the USA in a friendly. And that is Start Your Week. Ros, thank you for getting up early. Thank you. Listeners, thank you for joining us. If you're enjoying the shows we produce, the best way to keep them coming is to follow us on Patreon, where your support can directly fund Start Your Week and our other shows, including Oh God, What Now? and Doomsday Watch. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast for a few pounds a week, gets you the show early and without ads, along with other perks. Thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow for the panel show. Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Justin Quirk and Roz Taylor. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Jelena Sofronievich and Alex Reese, with assistant production by Kasia Tomaszewicz. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.